This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. I'm going to read a portion uh, from the Bible. We're going to read from 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 11 to verse 25. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 11 to 25. Verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to command those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, This is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I invite Pastor Andrew to bring us today's sermon. Hey, good morning, everyone. And uh, for those of you who are there on Zoom, okay, I'm going to be sharing the slides from my uh, PowerPoint here. So um, hopefully it works out well. So before we begin, uh, let's go to God in prayer. Uh, dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, we just pray that you will help us to truly understand your word, that your, the challenge of your word will bear deeply, not just on our minds, Uh, not just in our hearts and our feelings, but uh, also in our will, that we would seek to be transformed before you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Someone has once said that listening to a sermon 
is like going on a train to a destination. So the pastor is like the train driver. I'm driving the train, and the sermon is the train that takes you to that destination. But sometimes, when you're listening to the sermon, you kind of ask yourself the question: Do I want to get on board the train? Am I interested in the destination that the pastor is bringing me to? So today, as we uh, have read in the Bible uh, that was read to us by Edward, you may find yourself saying, "Do I really want to go to this destination? Uh, do I really want to listen to where the sermon is bringing me to?" Because it seems as if today's destination is the station called Submission Station. Right or submissionville or submission point, and you may not be very interested in going to that destination. You may say, "Well, you know, I'm not really interested in going to this destination called submission." But really, if uh, if the sermon was more about uh, freedom, you know, the station called freedom, or the station called independence, or the station called liberty, I would be really interested in going to that destination instead. So the question you may ask yourself today is, why listen? To this sermon, right? Why get on the train? Why get to this destination? Well, I think the really important reason that you should be listening and you should be getting on this train is the I word, the word identity, and that is what uh, this uh, book, One Peter, has been telling us all along. Okay, so let me share with you the slide. Oops, is that, I want to get to the bigger one. Okay, great. So, really, where we've been. Looking at so far in the book of One Peter has to do with our identity, our identity as Christians. Now the world struggles in finding identity, especially in this age, especially in this generation.、Uh, we have lost a sense of identity. So many people try to find identity, and then they try to find identity perhaps in gender. But it's very hard to find identity in gender today because what exactly does it mean to be a man or a woman? It's very confusing. Some people try to find identity in、uh, sexuality, but again, it's hard to find identity in sexuality because there are so many、uh, types of sexuality and it's so fluid.、Uh, some other people try to find identity perhaps in their race, you know, in terms of being white or black or yellow or brown. Perhaps identity is found in your nationality, in being America first, or perhaps in having pride in a strong China. But today, as we come to this passage, we need to remind ourselves of what we learned last week, which is our Christian identity is above all these identities. So last week, as we read,、um, oh, let me move this thing. Okay, it said,、uh, as you come to Him, the living stone. Rejected by men and chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ.、Uh, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness. Into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And here we see in this passage 
that last week, as uh, Andrew Wong was preaching about to us, it is full of descriptions of who we are in terms of our identity. We are a spiritual house built up into a holy priesthood. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And so if you can think of it this way, uh, basically we are a bit like this. Uh, come move forward. Okay, let's see how to move forward. Okay, great. So if you can see. So last week we saw that Jesus was this living cornerstone, so to speak. And we as Christians are the living stones which are being built into a spiritual house, like a temple. But not only are we a spiritual house, we are a royal holy priesthood, and we are a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And so you see that our identity, our identity as Christians is way above all the other identities that the world can give us, gender, sexuality, nationality, and race. Uh, in a way of speaking, uh, our identity as Christians trumps every other identity that we could have in this world. And what today's passage is really telling us is that as we have this new identity, it must be seen in terms of our transformed behavior. Oops. Okay, our new identity must be seen in terms of our transformed behavior. And this is where we come to in today's passage. So let's look at today's passage. Okay, today's passage begins by telling us this. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. So if last week we learned about our identity, then this week tells us that our identity must lead us into transformed behavior. So the Apostle Peter here addresses his listeners, his, the Christian listeners, in this way. He says to them, Dear friends, he calls them friends because together with them, they are part of this holy nation. They are part of this royal priesthood. They are part of this spiritual house. He doesn't get out the big stick and beat them, but instead he urges them. He urges them. He pleads with them. He begs them, he comes to them sincerely and pleads with them and says to them, look, as foreigners and as strangers, you need to abstain from sinful desires and live good lives. Because of this new identity that we have, we need to live out this new identity with a transformed life. And the marks of this new identity, which is what Peter is telling us, is two things. He tells us that they need to abstain from sinful desires and to live good lives. You see, new identity must always lead to transformed behavior. So if you think about it, when you have an identity as, say, a supporter of a football club, then the marks of that identity is shown maybe by you wearing uh, an Arsenal 
football jersey or a Liverpool uh, football jersey with uh, Salah at the back or a Barcelona journey with, jersey with uh, Lionel Messi at the back. If you're a rich person and you want to show the marks of a rich person, you drive a, a Porsche right, or a Ferrari to show that you're fashionably rich. Or maybe you drive a BMW or a Mercedes to show that you are respectably rich. Uh, or maybe you drive a Rolls Royce or a Bentley to show that you are seriously rich. But here in this passage, the marks of a Christian, the marks of our Christian identity are shown from not the t-shirts that we wear or the cars that we drive, but our behavior in abstaining from sinful desires and living good lives. And so, therefore, when you... Oops, got to go back to this thing. Here these things. Okay, great. So if you see, the identity is who you are shapes what you do. And so, if we are the people belonging to God, if we are a holy nation, a spiritual house, a royal holy priesthood, then in the same way, we need to have transformed behavior. We need to abstain from sinful desires and live good lives. But there is more to it than that. Our identity leads to this transformed behavior. But this transformed behavior also has a purpose. See, look at what it says there at the second half of verse 12. It says, even you must live such good lives among the pagans so that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. So the plan of God here is for people to glorify him. And he is glorified when non-believers, non-Christians, right, that's actually repeated to us because it's among the pagans and those who accuse you of doing wrong, when those who accuse you of doing wrong and the pagans see your good deeds, they may eventually glorify God. Now, the way I understand glorify God here is not that, uh, you know, when God suddenly comes, they, they recognize God. I, I think it's, it's more positive than that. It's where as they look at you as a transformed Christian, they too see God, receive God, and glorify God. They themselves become part of the holy nation. They themselves become part of this spiritual house. And I'd like to spend a moment just looking at this word here, the word which actually talks about the good deeds, right? The good deeds here, if you want to translate it literally, literally means your noble actions, your honorable life, your praiseworthy deeds, your beautiful deeds, so to speak. So it's almost like when the world looks at you and your transformed life, they see honorable actions, noble actions, praiseworthy and beautiful actions, and so they come to see, recognize, and know God himself. Now, that's a very, very important first application for us, which is, oops, okay, which is, okay, so the principle here, oops, okay, so again, if we see here, our new identity must lead to a transformed life, which leads to us glorifying God. 
And so the important reflection question for us today as we begin this first section, because the idea of glorifying God sort of seeps through this whole section. Are you living out a transformed life so that through you, people see God, receive God, and glorify God? Because that's what God intends for you to do as his people. Now, I met up with uh, my ex-boss a few weeks ago, and um, we had lunch. It was quite a disappointing lunch for me because uh, after I left to do full-time Christian work, he seemed pretty open to being a Christian. He was going to a church. Um, when we met up previously, he seemed to have good, sincere questions about Christianity. But this time, when we met up for lunch, he was actually quite negative and quite hostile to Christians and Christianity as a whole. And this is what he said to me. I'll quote to him. I'll quote to you what he said to me. So he said to me that most Christians forget what they have heard in the sermon or read in the Bible by the time they leave the church. In fact, he quoted me 10 minutes after they leave the church, they've forgotten what they've heard in the sermon or read in the Bible. And he said they behave no differently than everyone else. In fact, sometimes even worse. Now, that's really sad for me to hear because obviously I had hoped that now that he had gone to church, he would be more open to being a Christian. But instead of being more open to knowing God, receiving God, and glorifying God, the behavior of Christians at that church had actually led to him, rather than receiving God, being pushed away from God, instead of glorifying God, he felt like God had been disgraced. And that's a very important thing for us to consider. Are our actions correctly representing our identity as the holy nation of God? Uh, is our behavior class as noble and honorable and beautiful by the non-Christian world around us? So that when they see us, they actually get to be attracted to God, to know God, and ultimately to glorify God. Now the passage then goes on to um, the next section. So in the next section, we are given a concrete example of what this good living would be, an example of what this God-honoring life would be. And so in verse 13, he says, Submit yourself or yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, the first thing I want to point out to you here is this contrast between submitting yourself for the Lord 
to human authority. So I think the NIV is not so clear. I think that the more literal New American Standard Bible version translation is clearer. And you notice here the contrast comes out a lot more. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Right? So for the sake of God, your identity, submit to human institution. That means that for us as Christians, because we have this Christian identity, we are to submit to governments and authorities, laws and regulations, whether we agree or not, whether we think it is good or not, whether we voted for them or not. And again, it comes down to the I word, right? The identity word. We do so not because we like the government or we agree with the government at every point, but because we are Christians and because of the Lord's sake, then we obey the human institution. And if you look at the passage, right, again, you can actually see that what was said earlier on in the first section keeps being repeated here. The idea of identity as the motivation because we are God's people, and the idea of glorifying God. So here, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the talk of ignorant people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God. See, all the way through these verses, we are reminded over and over again that the motivation for submitting to government laws, regulations, and authorities is not because we like it or we don't, but because of our identity as God's people. For the Lord's sake, God's will, God's slaves, fearing God. And again, the idea here is also in that in this way we should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So people were maligning and slandering Christians, but by their example, they were to win over these people. They were to glorify God. You know, they were to glorify God before these people, and these people will get to know and see God through the honorable, beautiful, and noble actions of Christians. So just the other day, uh, I was driving on the road, and uh, this car drove really recklessly at a high speed past me. Actually, I think it was on the way back from church to um, back to my home. So I was driving down uh, Lonnie Road, you know, and it's supposed to be 70 km speed limit. Uh, and so this guy must have been going like 90 to 100. Maybe you, I hope it was not one of you, huh? okay? And um, at the back of his car was this fish sign. Then I was thinking to myself, okay, well, I'm a Christian and I got irritated at this guy. But imagine if my ex-boss was sitting with me in the car or he was driving. What would be his impression of God? What would be his impression of Christians? He, he would say, there you go again. See, Christians? Ten minutes out of church, they've forgotten what they've heard in church, forgotten what they read in the Bible. They're worse than non-Christians. See this guy? He's driving so fast and he... He's reckless. So why is this Christian car, maybe he borrowed his dad's car, who knows, a non-Christian driving his dad's car, right? Why is this guy going so fast? 
Usually, we don't want to obey the 70-kilometer uh, limit. Why? Because we are, maybe it's inconvenient for us. You know, we're, it's inconvenient. We're good drivers, right? That's just for everybody else, 70 kilometers, because I'm a good driver, so I can go faster. Maybe it's selfish, because I think that I have a, I have a priority to get to my house faster than, uh, than, than, than other people. Or maybe I just, it's a pride thing. I feel like I'm above the law. But those are the real reasons why we choose not to submit to authorities. Now, I want to clarify here, and actually today you'll see that in the sermon there are lots of clarifications, but I want to clarify here that it does not mean that we should submit to every government law. There are times where we should not submit to the government law. So, if we lived in North Korea, where it's against the law to worship God or to evangelize, then we must disobey the North Korean government. Why? Because we obey for the Lord's sake, the human institution. So when the human institution goes against the Lord, then our obligation to the human institution no longer applies. If I lived in Nazi Germany and I was ordered to kill Jews in a concentration camp, then again, right, I don't have to listen to Hitler. If I lived in some Middle Eastern country where reading the Bible or owning the Bible is banned, again, I, I am rightly, as God's person, allowed to not obey the authorities. But 99% of the time, we should be submitting to government authorities and rules and regulations. Because this is what God's will is for us, and this is our noble and honorable action towards God. We don't want to appear in the newspaper as a Christian not paying our taxes, right? Or getting caught for speeding or drink driving or something like that. You know what I mean? It's like that's just how does that advance the name of God? It does not. And so the question that we should consider ourselves right now is in the way that I submit to the government and its rules and regulations, do I glorify God or do I disgrace God? Do I give a positive witness to God or do I slander God? And are non-believers won over for or pushed away from God through my actions? Can now we then move on to the next section, and this will be a difficult section for us, where it says in verse 11, oh sorry, verse 18, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if, every, if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you may that sorry, that you should follow in his steps. Now again, I want to clarify because at this point we're coming to this issue of slavery, and I know that slavery is a hot button issue today and you read these words and you may say, okay, Andrew, this is the point where I get off the train, right? 
this is the point where I stop listening to you. I, I don't want to get to the destination anymore. But let me just say that this passage here is not endorsing or justifying or condoning the practice of slavery. Right? There are other parts of the Bible which talk about how if, if a slave can gain their freedom, that is a good thing. And we know from examples in the Bible that actually slavery is an evil institution which is used for oppression, abuse, and sin. So the first thing I want to make very clear is this passage here is not justifying slavery. The second thing is, when you read this passage, you may sort of say, well, because I'm not a slave, well, I don't really have to pay attention to this part. I can look at the mural of the GB girls over there, or I'll look out the window. But I think that this part doesn't just apply to people who are slaves, but it applies more broadly to the idea of Christian identity and living under some sort of authority, whether it's a boss, to an employee, a teacher, to a student, an officer, to a cadet. And the big idea that is really being pushed through here is the idea of that you must keep doing good even through or if it results in unjust suffering. And that's the whole point of this section, right? God says, what good is it if you suffer for doing wrong? But if you suffer for doing good, it is commendable before God or a gracious thing before God. It is credit to you. See, this is a very unnatural behavior because in the world that we live in, if you suffer for doing good, then you probably stop doing good. So I remember helping someone uh, clean their house before many years ago and this person kept criticizing me and nagging me. Not, not my wife, right? So, uh, so then afterwards I feel like, well, I don't really want to help you clean the house anymore, right? I don't want you to, to help doing good things for you because I don't feel appreciated. But, but God says because of our Christian identity, because of our transformed behavior, unjust suffering should not stop us from doing good. Our Christian identity means that, if you look here in verse 25, we are actually called, it says, oh, I didn't put it out for you, right? In verse 25, oops. In verse 25, it actually says that we are called to our Christian suffering. Okay, no, this is too far. Okay, verse 25, no, verse 25 is too far. Where did it say called? We are called for our Christian suffering. That's right, in verse 21, sorry. In verse 21, it says that we are called to Christian suffering and to continue to do good. Now, this word called here is a, is a word that is often used in different parts of the Bible and also in 1 Peter, and it's a very powerful word. We are called to be Christians. We are called to salvation. But here, we are called to suffer unjustly, but to keep doing good. And why is that? Because we follow the example of Jesus Christ. You see, when you think about the world, the world generally only does good when there's a positive environment. If there is encouragement, if there is reward, if people are grateful, people are, you know, people thank me, then I do good. But God's people are different. They continue to do good even when there is a hostile environment. 
where there is suffering, unjust and unfair suffering, they will still continue to do good because we are God's people. And here in verse 21 onwards, because we follow the example of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. You see, you think about uh, Jesus. He is the epitome of doing good while suffering unjustly. So you remember Jesus and his ministry went around preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And how did people respond? Well, the religious leaders, they came and they condemned him. Do you remember what they condemned him? They said he was a false prophet. They said that he was a fake. But did that stop Jesus from preaching the good news? No, he kept going, even in the face of unjust suffering. Jesus went and healed and did miracles. He healed many people. And how did... What was the response? He was threatened by the authorities. Remember what the authorities said? They said, you are the devil. You are from the Beelzebub. It was unjust, unfair. But that, did that stop Jesus from continuing to do good, healing, and doing miracles? No, he continued to do miracles and to heal. And the people that he came to save, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. But Jesus still continued to go to the cross. Now, if we remember the ministry of Jesus, then what it actually tells us is that this is an example for us to follow as well. Okay? Now, the first thing I want to say very clearly, and again, another clarification, is that this, these set of uh, verses is not a justification for you to be a victim. So the passage here is not for you to be taken advantage of or like a doormat where everybody walks on you, right? It's not an excuse for you to be a victim of physical violence or physical abuse or sexual abuse or domestic violence or discrimination like racism or sexism, okay? So this, you cannot use this passage to say, okay, well, you know, I'm being abused, but God wants me to abuse. I think what God is trying to say here is that if you look at the, this diagram, which I got from these very helpful notes from St. Helens, I thought this was a really good example, is that there will be some things that you do as a Christian, uh, which is Christian living, which will intersect with worldly living, which the world will say, well done, right? Okay, like you drive safely, you, uh, you, know, you, you, you do good things, and the world will say, well done, it's honorable, and it's beautiful, and it's noble. But there are also many things that you may do that the world will say, hey, you know, I don't really like that. And they will persecute you for it. And they'll they'll persecute you unjustly for it. And you will suffer. And the temptation then is when you are in this little blue area, right? Oh, let me see if I can get the blue up. When you're in this blue area, is to stop doing this good because it results in unjust suffering. But God says you must keep doing that good even though it results in unjust suffering because it is commendable to you not before the world but before God himself. And so some examples that uh, some people have shared with me or you, know, may, you may have experienced is you may be at work and your boss is over you and your boss wants you to do things like cutting the corners or you know, things which are 
you know, have maybe uh, legal implications. But, but because you're a Christian, you want to be completely above board, completely honest and right. And because of that, you will suffer. You may not get promoted. Your boss may not like you. Your boss may, may criticize you. Your boss may sideline you. And so the temptation is, well, maybe I'll stop being so honest. Maybe I will start cutting corners and being dishonest as well. But God says, keep doing good. Keep being honest. Keep not cutting the corners. Because this is who you are. This is your Christian identity. Right? This is commendable that you do good and bear up under unjust suffering. You may even lose your job. Uh, you may be uh, someone who's like a student. And uh, instead of spending all your time you know, studying, you, you go and help other people. Uh, in the, the poorer students and as a result you may not do as well and maybe you do not get favored and that's very unfair but God will say keep helping other people right? don't stop helping other people and so this is what I think the big idea is keep doing good even if it results in unjust suffering and why? because of the example of Jesus Christ Okay, so in verse um, 24 to 25, the passage comes back again to this importance of, and a reminder of our identity. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, look at how it begins. He himself. The reason why it begins this way is because it's emphatic. Only God, through Jesus, sending Jesus, has dealt with the problem of our sins. Not ourselves, not anybody else, not going to church, not doing religious acts. Jesus himself is the one who bore our sins. He's the one who took all our sins. And how did he do it? On his body, on the cross, by his wounds, so that we may be healed. So when you think about what Jesus did when he went to the cross, that is one of the most unjust things that have ever happened in the world, right? It's, it's like the pinnacle or the high point of unjust suffering. Jesus went to the cross to be punished even though he was sinless. Right? How, how unjust and unfair is that? He died on the cross for sins that he didn't even commit. And on top of that, he suffered one of the worst sufferings that anybody could suffer. Crucifixion on the cross, the worst Roman punishment you could get. But Many people died of crucifixion before Jesus, and many people died of crucifixion after Jesus. But Jesus' suffering was even worse than all the crucifixions which came before, and all the crucifixions that came after, because on the cross, he didn't just die and suffer physically, but he bore in himself the punishment, the wrath, and the judgment of all the sins of the whole world before, then, and after. 
So when you look at Jesus, here is the picture of unjust suffering. And Jesus tells us that we must follow his example. He faced unjust suffering, but he still did God's will. He still did good. And so as we understand what he did here, he says to us, come and follow me. But not only that, he reminds us that it is because of this high point of unjust suffering that we are now part of God's people. We are now part of God's people. And therefore, he tells us, for you were like sheep that were gone astray, but now you return to the shepherd overseer of your souls. Right? So, we were once not the sheep, we were lost sheep, but now we are actually part of God's flock. We return to him as the shepherd and as our overseer, as our guardian. This is our identity. And because this is our identity, we must die to sins and live for righteousness. Now, if you have been following me all through the sermon, you'll see that there's a, there's a repeating pattern here, isn't it? Because that's how we began. We began by saying that because of our Christian identity, right, because we are a holy nation, a spiritual house, we must abstain from these sinful desires and live such good lives. Well, now we end by saying, die to sins and live for righteousness. So as we close our time together, the take-home message, the application really is, do you see yourself having this new identity? That you were once lost sheep, but now you have God as your shepherd. You are now without mercy, but now you are the holy nation, the spiritual house of God. Because if you do, then your life must be filled with a transformed behavior. You must choose to abstain from sinful desires and to live good lives. You must die to sins and to live for righteousness. And through you, God can bring non-believers to be saved as well. That non-believers through you will see God, receive God, and glorify God. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you so much for it is through your action, through Jesus, He Himself, not ourselves, He Himself faced terrible, unjust suffering to bear our sins, to go to the cross, and to take the punishment of all of the world through all time. Dear Father, help us to see that because we are now saved by this powerful work of Jesus, this costly, priceless, and invaluable gift of being saved, your people, the lost sheep being found, has now come to us. Help us to see that uh, our identity as a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a spiritual house, is greater than any identity that we have in this world. And we pray that because of who we are, it will change what we do. That our lives will be transformed and we will live good lives, righteous lives, and that we will die to sins and abstain from sinful desires. 
We pray that through us, you will use us so that people may see you, receive you, and glorify you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.